Well, welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Blake Baston. I'm one of the pastors here. So I want to welcome everyone who's joining us here in the sanctuary, over at Edmond, in the venue, uh, at our prisons, all our brothers and sisters, all throughout the state, at the Children's Center and online. We just want to welcome everyone who's here today. Uh, I'm thrilled that Marty's given me the opportunity to share God's word with you today as we wrap up our sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit. Let me read you our verse. It says from Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now my 11-year-old daughter, Samantha, told me that the reason self-control is at the very end of the list is because it's the last priority for all children. And she may be right, she may be right, but what I thought this week after I watched all of us gorge ourselves on turkey and pie and go shopping like crazy is that we as adults have probably lost all dignity of self-control as well. I think that the Black Friday event in itself is a prime example of the fact that we have lost all control. This Christmas shopping season that we're in shows that we have no self-control. And I'm actually not here to judge you about that. I can't judge, I'm a hypocrite. Uh, there, was, there was one year, one year that I allowed myself to lose all control on the Christmas shopping season, and they are still telling stories about me at the Target over at Quail next to Penn about the day that the fully grown man in his suit and his cowboy boots outran a horde of moms and some college students to get the prize that we all sought that day the last two Hatchimals in Oklahoma City. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things that starts out where we're all walking like normal people, but then somebody starts to run, and I said, no, 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 this shall not happen. I outran them all. And I'll never forget that day because those women were insane, and they came up to me with their kids in tow, their kids crying, begging me, begging me to sell them a Hatchimal. And I had this one little girl just crying, saying, Mr., please, will you give me a Hatchimal? And I remember feeling so much compassion for her and I got down close and I showed her the Hatchimal and she's just crying and I said, little girl, if you want a Hatchimal, your mother should have run faster. <laughs> I'm just kidding, I'm not a complete monster, that last part's not true, but the rest of it is. We as a society have lost all control, all control. From our eating, to our shopping, to our envy, to our lust, our economy runs on this idea that we are out of control, but self-control, it's not something we can teach you. It's not something you can master on your own. It's just like all the other fruit of the Spirit. It's a consequence. It's a consequence of something greater. It's a consequence of who you are, of who you are, and are you living in the way that we are called to live, which really begs a bigger question for today. If self-control is a consequence of who we are, then who are we? Who are we? And that's what I want to talk about today. Who are we? And what you'll find, at least I have found as a pastor here at our church, as I've talked to so many of you, is that so many people, when they think about who they are, they have a very low view of themselves, very negative view of themselves. But God has a very different view of who you are and who you are called to be. And I want to give you this perspective today. For everyone here, everyone who's hearing this message, if you have faith in Christ, this is who God says you are. You are royal heirs, kings and queens, created and called to serve the greatest of kingdoms, being made daily in the likeness of the king of kings himself. 
royal heirs. I want you to hear this. You are royal heirs, kings and queens, created and called to serve the greatest of kingdoms, being made daily in the likeness of the king of kings himself. Now, this is a major claim, a major statement. And what you're gonna see in the Bible is that God will package this all together. It's a combination. He'll show you this combination of how he creates this in you. They're a combination of both what he has done for you and what he is doing in you. If you should look at this, this chart I have up on the screen, and, and right before I got in here, Terry Fakes came up and he told me, he said, look, look like a chart is one step towards a map. <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'm gonna be the chart guy today. This chart on the very top shows, at the very top of it, what God has done for you. There is part of who you are that God's already done for you. He has given you a design and an identity we'll talk about today. And then the bottom half is gonna show you things that God is doing in you to create in you who you are by shaping your mind and your actions and your desires. All of these things God will do in you to create in you who you are, royal heirs, kings and queens, created and called to serve the greatest of kingdoms, being made daily in the likeness of the king of kings himself. So let's start with design. Now there's part of your design, part of the self, this idea of who you are, that is embedded in all of us. All of us share this, all of humanity. No matter your nationality, or your religion, your ethnicity, your race, we all share one thing. We were made in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 says this. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. These are just attributes of who we are, what separates humankind from the beast. But there's something deeper about this verse that we don't normally hear. It's not just a verse about, about how we've been designed. It's a verse about what we've been designed to do. You see, God is giving us purpose hidden here in this verse. Walter Brueggemann, a theologian, says it this way. He says, it's now generally agreed that the image of God reflected in human persons is after the manner of a king who establishes statues of himself to assert his sovereign rule where the king himself cannot be present. You see, by making us in his image, God's giving us something to do. He's giving us a purpose. He's saying, you are to go and to be my royal representatives here on earth. You are to go and do the great work of kings and queens. And what is it that kings and queens do, the great ones? What is it that they do? They expand the kingdom and they care for those that have been entrusted to them. This is what we've been called to do. The fact that you are made in the image of God gives you this purpose. If you hear nothing else today, I want you to hear that you, because you are an image bearer of God, you are called to something greater than what you may know. Now the second part of who we are is what I call our identity. And this is also something God has done for us. And he's given us an identity that actually reinforces the purpose of what we have to do, right? I want you to think about it this way. If you are a, if you think back to the kings and queens in world history, you'll find that the vast majority of them have been able to rise to their rank, to their title, to their identity because of something they have that other people don't. You know, it's pretty simple. They were born into the royal line. If you think about it this way, um, Alexander the Great, was heir to the throne, 
not because of anything he had done, it's simply because he was the son of Philip II, or Queen Elizabeth II, who died this year. Queen Elizabeth, she became queen solely because she was the eldest child of King George VI. What I'm trying to get to here is that when you are called to do royal things, when you are called to a royal purpose, so much of your identity is baked up in this one concept. You are in the family line. And God's gonna teach us about this. In the book of John, we hear this. It says, he, speaking of Jesus, came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now I want you to, to hear this real quick because there's a distinction here between children of God and image bearers of God. All of us throughout all of humanity are image bearers of God who deserve dignity and respect. But there's a boundary statement on those who are called children of God who have that identity. The boundary statement is right there. It says, those who believed in his name Another way to say that is those who have faith get to be called children of God. Now this is no small identity, right? And Paul's gonna go on to explain this more in, in Ephesians. Paul's gonna say that not only are we children, we are adopted as sons and daughters. And in Romans, he's gonna say that we are not just children of God, but we are heirs. We are fellow heirs with Christ. Now this idea of being an adopted heir was very, very top of mind for the Israelites at the time, for anyone who was in the Roman Empire. Because their idea of adoption is not what we normally think of as adoption. We think of adoption as children going into loving homes, but there, they were thinking of adoption in a very different way. You see, the first emperor of Rome was a man named Augustus, and Augustus had no child to pass on the empire to. So what did he do? he adopted a fully grown man named Tiberius to pass down the throne. If you were a Roman citizen at the time, the greatest identity you could imagine is to be the adopted heir of the emperor of Rome. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. If that was the greatest identity you could imagine, how much more so is it that we have been given an identity in Christ that says that we are not the adopted heirs of an empire that will one day fall in this world. We are the adopted heirs of an empire that will never fall. We are the adopted heirs of God himself. I want you to let that sink in, because if you, you, know, if you leave here today and you haven't listened to anything else I said, this is something you need to know. Right? I want you to take every label that you may have on you right now, either something you've given yourself or society has given you, and I want you to throw it away. Because if you have faith in Christ, this is the identity above all identities. You are his child. You are an adopted heir to every spiritual blessing that is in Christ. Everything else in this world pales in comparison because that is who you are. This top half of this visual shows us what God has already done for us. But what you also need to understand that is on the bottom half of this, God's not done. God continues to form us. He continues to form us through the doing, through the work of the Holy Spirit. He will form us with our mind. He will form us with our actions. He'll form us with our desires. 
want you to think about it this way. Think back again to the great kings and queens of history. You know, Alexander the Great wasn't actually born Alexander the Great. He was born Alexander. It was what he did with the throne that made him Alexander the Great. He was formed through the doing. What you'll find is that God works the same way. Through the doing of the things of God, God makes us more like God. It's John Wesley would call this the means of grace. As I was reading through the book of Mark, I came across a section in Mark chapters eight through 10. If you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn uh, to Mark chapter eight. And in Mark eight through 10, Jesus is gonna show his disciples how it is that he is going to form them into who they are called to be. He's gonna form them with their minds, with their actions and their desires. And over the course of these three chapters, Jesus is gonna do something three times. Three times in these three chapters, he's going to tell his disciples that he has come to suffer, to die, and to rise again. And three times in the chapters, the disciples are gonna respond by saying, by, by showing that they've been formed by the world, not by God. And three times, Jesus is gonna use it as an opportunity to instruct them on how he will form them to make them who he has called them to be his royal representatives in the kingdom. So if you can, go to Mark chapter eight, verse 31, and I'll set the context for it. Jesus has just asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter has confessed that he believes that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter believes that he's the Messiah, just like he's believed it all of his life, that someday this guy would come who would, who would overthrow the Romans, who would set the Israelites free, who would, who would make sure they get justice for how they've been oppressed, who would be the perfect king of Israel. He has this idea in his mind as to who the Messiah is. And in Peter's mind, the Messiah was gonna come with worldly power and prestige. But Jesus is gonna turn all that upside down. Look what Jesus says, or it says in Mark. It says in verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and to be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, if Jesus were to die, he would not be able to do everything Peter thought he would come to do. Peter had it in mind one way, but Jesus was going about and doing something a different way. And Jesus corrects him. He says, Peter, you are not setting your mind on the things of God. You're setting your mind on the things of man. And as I thought about why Peter had done what he'd done, I realized that Peter just thought what everybody else thought. Peter had been formed over time with these ideas of the Messiah that had come not as much from God, but from stories of man. All of them wanted justice and revenge, and they wanted national pride, and they wanted all these things. But that's not actually what the Messiah had come to do. And Jesus is telling Peter, he goes, just because you think something is right, just because you think something is of God, does not mean that it actually is of God. To put the things of God in our mind means that we actually have to be proactive about putting the things of God in our mind. And in our society today, we don't proactively put hardly anything in our minds. 
right? I want you to think about how much you just consume without even thinking about what is going in your mind. And if you ever heard the old adage, you are what you read, there's truth to that. What goes into your mind will form the way you think. It will form who you are. So what Jesus is telling us is like, for you to be formed into who I am calling you to be, you must set your mind on the things of God. And that requires us to be proactive. That requires us to actually read the word of God, to put this into our minds, to allow this to be what shapes us through word and prayer. This is how the Holy Spirit will work. It will take, he will take the word and make us more and more like the King of Kings. And if we're first transformed by our mind, we're next transformed by our actions. You see, we are formed not just in what we think, but in what we do. Aristotle once said this. He said, it is by doing just things that the just man is produced. It is by doing just things that the just man is produced. And you all know what that means. A good husband or a good wife is not a good wife just because they got married on the wedding day. They're a good husband because of what they do, right? By doing just things, a just man is produced. And so you see in, in the second time that Jesus predicts his death in Mark chapter nine, Jesus is gonna tell his disciples what they must do in order to be formed into the representatives he has called them to be. So it says in verse 30, Chapter nine says, they went on from there and passed through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know for he was teaching his disciples saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying. They were afraid to ask him. And so they went on to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. You see, Jesus has just told his disciples that he's going to die and they respond by arguing about who is the greatest. Jesus is saying, he sits them down. It's kind of like a teacher saying, look me in the eye, I've got something to tell you. He sits them down and he goes, I'm going to tell you what it means to be great. You are arguing about the greatness in terms of the world, but in my kingdom, this is what greatness looks like. He says, if anyone would be first, if anyone would be great, he must be last of all and servant of all. This word for servant is one who, who waits tables, who serves at tables, which was not a well-respected profession in the day. And, and in Luke, Jesus says this. He says, for, one, for who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who serves? This is a rhetorical statement. Is it not the one who serves? But then he goes, but for I, but I am among you. I, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the one who created all the stars in the sky, the most powerful thing you could ever imagine. I am among you as the one who serves. He's saying in my kingdom, to be great, to be formed into greatness means that you should serve. And he goes further to illustrate who we should go serve. He puts a, children, a child in their midst. 
And children in that day, they were not revered like they are today. Uh, back in ancient Israel, there were no traveling sports teams for children, right? The children were not honored. Children were, some people got that joke. Yeah, people, you know, children were not honored. Uh, they were seen as, as, as not to have arrived in society yet. They weren't useful. And so whenever he puts a child in their midst, it's a perfect example of somebody who is both the least and somebody who's vulnerable. And he says, you are called to serve in this kingdom. And when you serve, you are called to serve the least of these. This is how the Holy Spirit will work in us. I want you to understand this. As we go and we serve the least of these, God will work through us to make us more and more like him. I wanna to prove to you that this is true. If you just ask around in the aisles just a little bit, you're eventually gonna find someone here in our church who goes each month and serves in our prison ministry. And I know from talking to so many of our volunteers who serve in our prison ministry, that when you come back from that experience, every single one of you, every single one I've talked to, you have come back more and more like Christ. So you go and you serve because we think it's what we ought to do, and it is. It is what we ought to do, God tells us to. But when you go and you serve, you experience the incredible grace of God. See, the grace of God not only pardons you, the grace of God empowers you. And as you serve, as you do, as you do the things of God, the Holy Spirit utilizes that, and he will transform you to be more and more like the King of Kings himself. He's saying, I've called you to serve, and as you serve, you go and you serve the least of these, and I will form you through the process. The last thing Jesus talks about is desire. One last time before they get to Jerusalem, they are on a journey to Jerusalem, and one last time before they get to Jerusalem, he tells his disciples that he has come to die. And one last time, they act like idiots, right? One last time, they respond by showing that they have been made by the world. See, Jesus has just told them that he's going to suffer and die and rise again, and in Mark chapter 10, verse 35, we read this. And it says, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do whatever for us we ask of you. It's always a trick question, by the way. We want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? I want you to remember that question. What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, one at your left, in your glory. I thought about this. If Jesus were sitting right here next to us today, like a magic genie, and he were to ask each and every one of you, what is it that you want me to do for you? And your heart would respond for you, the desires of your heart would respond for you, what would it say? Would it say that I want money, or power, or fame, sex, glory, love? What would your heart say? I was sitting down last night, and I asked myself this question. And I know exactly what my heart would say. I would say, Jesus, please let Lincoln Riley never win another college football game. <laughs> you all share that with me, and he understands. <laughs> he understands. James and John, though, they were seeking glory. That is what their heart desired. Glory, they hoped that in the glory of Christ, they could get just a piece of that glory. 
that they could march in with the triumphant king, one at the left and one at the right. But Jesus explains to them, that is not who you are, right? Your desires must be changed. And in verse 41, it says, and when the 10 heard it, the other disciples, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That should be our desire. Not to be served, but to serve. Not to have our lives, but to give it. That should be our desire. Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. The way of the world shall not be so among you. Not my royal representatives, not heir to the throne. That shall not be your way. If you want to be great, your desire must be to serve. If you want to be first, your desire must be to be a slave to all. And if you want me to demonstrate to you what this looks like, I am God in flesh, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And I came not to be served but to serve, not to have life, but to give my life. This is who you are called to be. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And for all of you in the room, all of you listening, you know that as you serve, what happens? God will use it. And your desires will continue to be to serve more and more. That will become who you are. Now, Jesus brings all of these lessons together in one quick act. Right there after this passage in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 46, just before Jesus and his disciples enter into Jerusalem, Jesus brings it all together. And he goes, if you want to be my heirs, royal kings and queens in my kingdom, let me show you what it looks like. Let me show you what it looks like, who it is that you're gonna become. You see, as Jesus is heading up to Jerusalem, as he's on his way to do the most monumental act in the history of the world, on his way to die, I think we could all have excused Jesus just a little bit if his mind was elsewhere. But his mind was not on the things of man. His mind was on the things of God. And the reason we know that his mind was on the things of God was because he heard the cries of one, the cries of a blind beggar on the side of the road named Bartimaeus. When others were trying to silence Bartimaeus, he heard the cry. He heard the cry that said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then it shows what the king of kings does. The king of kings did something about it. He didn't just continue on his way because he was busy and he had important things to do. He did something incredible. He stopped. He stopped. Everything he was doing, he just stopped. And he called Bartimaeus and he sent his representatives out to Bartimaeus who had compassion on them. And they said, get up, take heart, he's calling you. He let them be a part of the work. And Bartimaeus comes back and Jesus asked Bartimaeus one question. He says, Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? The same question he had asked James and John. And you remember the desire of James and John was glory. But here's the desire of Bartimaeus. He says, just let me see, Rabbi. Let me see. What a reminder to all of us that when you have all of your needs met, 
It's easy to think about glory and fame and honor and pride, but when you're hungry and blind and on the side of the road, when you're addicted, when you're in despair, when you're chronically lonely, you don't care about things as foolish as the glory of men. You just seek what Bartimaeus sought, mercy, and to be made well. Jesus is saying, if you want to be kings and queens, if you want to be my royal heirs, I'm going to form you into it. And this is what it looks like in our family. This is what it looks like in the royal line. You put your mind on the things of God and you stop when you hear the least of these crying out. You go and you do, you serve, you become through the doing. And you remember the desires that we all seek to be made well, to be shown mercy. As I was thinking about wrapping up this message, how to wrap it up, I remembered that in this Christmas season, we're gonna have so many opportunities to practice this, to go and to serve the least of these. But I also know something else is true. As many opportunities as we're gonna have to go and be what God has called us to be, to serve the least of these, you're also gonna be really, really busy. And it's gonna be hard to do. And as I was thinking about this, one Saturday morning when I was prepping for this sermon, I got a phone call. And the phone call was from one of you. And it was one of you that's been specifically entrusted to my care. It's one of you that's young and vulnerable and has few resources. It's had a tough go of life. And on the other side of the line, this is what you said. You said, Blake, I am so sorry to call you, but I'm on the side of the road and it's cold, and I don't know what to do. I know you're busy, but if you can, can you come, can you help me? And I remember being on that phone while doing this sermon prep, thinking to myself, my very first thought was, not today, not today, I'm busy, I got stuff to do, I gotta go buy some Hatchimals at Target, right? I got, I've got things to do, but I remember that that's what the kings of the world would say. The kings of the world wouldn't care about the voice of one on the side of the road, but that is not who we are. It shall not be so among us. The king of kings stops when they hear the cries of the vulnerable on the side of the road. See, the decision that day about whether or not I would go, whether or not I would go and serve was not just a decision about what was right or what was wrong. I think we all know what the right thing to do there was. And just for reference, I did actually go help this person, right? After I told that Target story, you may think I'm a monster, right? I did go help this person. But the decision was not just what's right and what's wrong. The decision was, who am I going to become that day? If you are formed through the doing of the things of God, if the Holy Spirit works through you in that way, I had a choice. Well, I was gonna be formed by the doing of the things of God that day. Or was it going to be formed by the doing of the things of the world? In this Christmas season, let us be the people God has called us to be. Let us do the things of God. Let us be made more and more like him. Set your mind in this season on the things of God, not man. Go and do. Go and serve the least of these. Make your desires Christ's desires. And what you will find as you do it is that you are no longer who you thought you were. You are royal heirs, kings and queens. You are created and called to serve the greatest of kingdoms. 
and daily, daily, you're being made more like the King of Kings himself. That is who you are. And if you haven't paid attention to anything else I've said today, just lay off the M&Ms, all right? All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for our church. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Holy Spirit who shapes us and forms us into who you've called us to be. May we be your representatives here in this world. May we hear the cries of those that you have called us to serve. May we have a desire to meet their needs. May we be yours. We thank you for the identity you've given us, for the purpose you've given to us. May we be what you've asked us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, everybody.